0: Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 10, Of Effectual Calling, Paragraph 1. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. In chapter 9 of the Westminster Confession, and paragraph 3, we hear something absolutely startling. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good, and dead in sin, is not able, by his own strength, to convert himself, or to prepare himself, Thereunto, the natural man, according to the Westminster Divines, cannot save himself. He has no ability to do any spiritual good. He is dead in sin, and he cannot even prepare himself unto salvation. If we hear this in isolation, then perhaps the question might come to us, who then can be saved? Chapter 10 begins to answer that question. The opening paragraph states that all those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call. Who then can be saved? The Divines answer, those predestined unto life, and those who God calls to salvation. We have already discussed predestination in chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, And in chapter 3, paragraph 3, we read this truth. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. We stated back then and state again that this is a difficult truth, but truth it is indeed. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 to 6, that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. And the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6 and verse 65 states, "This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And in verse 37 of that very same chapter, Jesus again says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The scriptures teach that there are some who are predestined unto life. It isn't because they are better than everyone else. It isn't because they are the special ones, those who somehow would respond in a different way to God's gospel. That's not it at all. It entirely is about the grace and mercy of God. If the Lord did not act in salvation, then none would be saved. But by his grace, there will be a multitude saved, those predestinated unto life. And so this truth is repeated in chapter 10 and paragraph 1, that God has predestinated some unto life. And, state the Westminster divines, those only This, once more, is a difficult truth. God does not call everyone to salvation. God does not speak into the souls of every single human being who has ever lived. Only those who have been predestinated onto life will God effectually call. Jesus says this in Matthew 22 and verse 14 when he states that many are called, but few are chosen. We see this Sunday by Sunday in our churches. Let's speak about a congregation that perhaps has 100 members. They come, they sit, they listen to the sermon, they all hear the gospel call. They are challenged to repent and to believe the gospel. And yet, 75 of the 100 reject that call, week after week after week. There are 25 who hear it and respond to it in repentance and faith, but the others, it isn't for them. Many are called, but few are chosen. And in our hypothetical congregation with a hundred members, 25 of whom have responded to the gospel, well, those are the 25 that the Westminster Divines speak of here. That number, that 25, are the ones predestinated unto life. And God, in his appointed and accepted time, effectually called these individuals to saving faith. Some of those 25 were saved as children. Their mother was very faithful in prayer and reading the Bible and one night a little girl asked her mother what must I do to be saved and her mother led her to the Lord. Some of that 25 were saved at a mission. A preacher came to town and preached a week's worth of gospel messages in a local hall. A man went up to the front that night and came to know Christ as his Saviour. Someone else in that twenty five was going to bed one evening. He stopped to pray, empty prayers as he had always prayed, hoping that perhaps there was a God out there somewhere. And then that night his eyes were opened. He came to realize that there was a God. He came to trust in Christ Jesus for his salvation. It is this that the Westminster Divines teach us. Some are predestined unto life, and God and a time and a place of his choosing effectually calls them to saving faith. Think of your own story of salvation. Some of you can remember vividly the day and the hour, the moment that your eyes were opened and that you came to believe. For others, it will be a little bit vague. You can't really remember, but you know that you have always trusted Christ from the very earliest days. God, in his appointed and accepted time, chooses to effectually call those who he has predestined onto life and those alone. And the call is effectual. It is effective. When that call comes, those predestinated onto life will respond. It is here that we make the distinction between the outward call of the gospel and the inward call of the Holy Spirit. Again, in our imaginary 100-member church, the outward call of the gospel goes out every week. A faithful preacher proclaims that you must be born again, He constantly points you to Jesus and urges you to receive him and to flee from the wrath of God. Here is the outward call of the gospel. It is heard every single week by the full membership of that church. And yet it is only the small number of the 100 who respond to it. For they have heard both the outward call of the gospel and the inner call of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it might seem to us that the outward call is not effective. Many reject it. But the inward call, when the Spirit comes and calls, it will always be effective, and he will lead sinners unto Jesus. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. Here is the chain of salvation. Those predestined in eternity past, one day in a certain time and a certain place of God's choosing, will also be called. And that call, when it comes, will be absolutely effective. But while there is great diversity amongst us about the time and place of when we came to Christ, what we can say together is that we have been saved by the preaching of the Word and by a movement of the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Divines make that absolutely clear. God calls sinners to Himself by His Word and by His Spirit. Paul states this in Second Thessalonians chapter two and verses thirteen to fourteen. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonian believers came to saving faith by the Spirit and belief in the truth. As Paul says in Second Corinthians 3 and verse 6, the Spirit is the one who gives life. And so if anyone has ever been saved... It is because the word has been proclaimed and the spirit has moved. It is for this reason why in the Reformed Church the preaching of the word is absolutely central to everything we do. Sometimes perhaps you will come across a fellowship where the preaching is relegated to second place or perhaps even further down the list. This is a great danger and a great error. It is by the word proclaimed and the moving of God the Holy Spirit that sinners are converted. And so, if we relegate the word to a secondary or lesser place, then we are denying the means by which God has appointed to call sinners to himself. And this also informs our evangelism. We can be very, very good neighbours. We can go to the shops for an elderly friend. We can cut the grass of someone in our community but whilst these things are caring acts they are not evangelism if we believe that by fixing someone's fence or painting someone's house perhaps they are going to come to know Jesus then we are deluded we can do these things we can care and we can love for those around us but we have not been faithful in evangelism unless we proclaim the word this is how people are saved this is god's appointed method by word proclaimed and by the moving of the Holy Spirit. And as the Word is proclaimed, and as the Spirit moves and calls sinners to repentance and faith, then a dramatic transformation takes place. The Westminster Divines continue in this paragraph to state that we are called by Word and Spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which we are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. A dramatic extraordinary, life-changing change takes place. And as Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We move from death and sin to life in Christ. This is what happens when God steps into a sinner's life and converts him or her to saving faith. Paul famously outlines this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 5. He begins with the bad news. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. These three verses show us that we are in sin and in death. But in verse 4 and 5, we see the great transformation brought about by the preaching of God's word and the movement of the Holy Spirit. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. A Christian is someone who in eternity past was predestined unto life. And a Christian is someone who in God's appointed time and place has heard the inner call of the Holy Spirit which they respond to in repentance and faith. A Christian is someone who God has acted decisively in their life and has moved them from death and sin to life in Christ. And being a Christian is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card, as often many people say it. The Westminster Divines continue in this passage to tell us that God moves in our lives by word and spirit. He transforms us from death to life, and he enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. When dead in sin, we cannot understand the things of God. Sermons go over our heads. We have no interest in the word. We have no time for theology. And yet now that we have been saved, we have been enlightened so that we can spiritually and savingly understand the things of God. Paul says in Acts 26 and verse 18 that God sent him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is clear that his ministry was an eye-opening ministry, so that the Gentiles might have their minds spiritually and savingly enlightened, so that they might understand the things of God. Paul continues in First Corinthians two, verses ten to twelve. He says, God has revealed to us these things through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit moves in a sinner's life, and he enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly, so that they might comprehend the gospel and the things of God. And finally, Paul tells us once more in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17-18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Christians are converted, and it isn't that they will know everything. It isn't that they won't ever struggle with the teaching of God's word. I meet believers all the time who who really just don't grasp some of the massive truths of Scripture. Indeed, I count myself as one of them. But as we are converted, our minds are enlightened. Our eyes are opened. The Spirit of God comes and dwells within, and He opens our eyes to our need of Christ. He opens our eyes to the truth of God's Word. He enlightens us both spiritually and savingly. And not only do we receive this wisdom... But as the divines continue, the Lord takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. It is this promise that we see in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Those who have been predestined in eternity past at a certain point in history of God's choosing, will hear the outward call of God's word and the inner effective call of the Holy Spirit. God will save them as they call upon him and he will transform them radically, taking away their hardness of heart and giving them a heart of flesh willing to serve and obey and follow him for the rest of their days. And as we have spent the last weeks talking about our wills, God also will renew our wills, And by his almighty power, say the Westminster divines, he will determine them to that which is good. As we stated last time out, Christians are not made perfect this side of glory. A Christian cannot expect to wake up the next day and sin no more. There will always be the remnant of the old man or old woman. And yet still there will be a dramatic transformation. Our wills will be renewed by God's almighty power and therefore we will be made willing and able to serve him. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 and verse 13, it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, we read that the Lord God will circumcise our hearts and the hearts of our offspring so that we will love him with all our hearts and with all our souls so that we may live. And in the very next verse of Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, we read God's promise. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The one who is effectually called by word and spirit, the one who runs to Jesus and is saved, is one who will have his or her will renewed and will follow after Christ. The Christian life is one of obedience. It is a call to holiness, a call to daily repentance, a call to every day picking up the cross and following Christ. And it is the Lord's work in us who renews our will and enables us to follow this path. And so in just a few parts of this paragraph, we see the amazing transformation of the Christian. Called from sin and death to grace and salvation in Christ called by the Holy Spirit and having our minds enlightened spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, having our hearts of stone taken away and replaced with a heart of flesh, having our wills renewed by God's almighty power to enable us to follow after him. And as the Westminster Divines underline this, they say that we are effectually drawn to Christ. Our eyes are open. And we realize our wretchedness. And so therefore, as the Spirit works, we are effectually drawn to the one who can save us. Jesus says in John 6 and 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As the Lord does this wonderful, transforming work, as he causes us to be born again, He draws us to Christ by word and by spirit. And we receive Christ by faith and we rest in him as he is offered in the gospel. And yet the Westminster Divines want to underline as the paragraph finishes that we are not robots. We have said that repeatedly over the past couple of weeks and we'll say it once more today. The final words of this paragraph state that we come to Jesus most freely, being made willing by His grace. Again, sometimes a caricature of the Reformed faith is that God turns us into a mindless automaton. He draws us to Christ. He, he drags us, you could say, to Christ. It's against our will. We don't want to, but who can withstand a holy God? But that is simply not the truth. We hear the word preached, The Spirit works and speaks that inner call to us. We are born again. We are transformed. Our eyes are opened to the things of God. We are led to Jesus and with our own eyes we see his loveliness, his beauty, his grace and his mercy. And so we receive him, not with arms twisted up our backs, but willingly. We have been transformed by His grace, and we would want nothing or no one else other than Christ. In Psalm 110 and verse 3, we read this truth Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And this is exactly what the sinner does who calls on Jesus. They have heard the word preached, and they are transformed by the Spirit. They are born again and they run to Jesus. We freely and willingly take on the title Christian. We willingly and freely seek to follow Christ. We willingly and freely claim him as our Savior because with new hearts and enlightened minds and wills, there is no other choice. If we compare Christ to all the other so-called saviors out there, there is no comparison. He is endlessly wonderful, endlessly beautiful, endlessly mighty and powerful. Who else would we wish to follow? And so we follow him, most freely, made willing by his wonderful and amazing grace. I think there's a good summary of this in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 1 asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is surely the answer of any believer who has ever received that inner call of the Holy Spirit and has come to Christ with eyes wide open to see just how amazing he is. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own. But belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Saviour Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father. Not a hair can fall from my head. And indeed all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore. By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What an answer! What a statement of truth! And what a picture it is that we have received of our faithful Saviour Jesus Christ. With eyes wide open and hearts made soft and free, we have run willingly to Jesus. Isn't it amazing to note that in this day of Facebook, Twitter, social media, a 24-hour news cycle, constant voices demanding constant attention be given to them, that God still speaks, God still calls in a manner that is effective and mighty as he delivers the inner call to the hearts of sinful men and women like us, making them heartily willing and ready. From now on, to live for Him. As always, some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Who then can be saved? Question 2. What is the difference between the outward call of God and the inner call of God? Question 3. What means does God use to bring us to saving faith? Question four. The impact of God's effective call is huge, with the Westminster Divines highlighting at least five areas of change. Name them and explain them. And Question five. True or false, the Christian is forced to trust Christ. Give reasons for your answer. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess.